Most people associate the approaching holiday season with family and harmony. It represents an opportunity to spend time with loved ones and send thanks for all that you're grateful for. However, for many others, Thanksgiving is a deeply controversial issue, which points to a greater history of colonialism and subjugation, which still has profound effects on society today, especially for Indigenous peoples. Uh, join us in our discussion with Dr. Yarborough in order to open up the discussion about Thanksgiving and highlight contemporary issues many Native peoples in the United States, and especially women, still face today. Dr. Yarborough is a professor of history at Rice, whose areas of interest include Native populations in the American Southeast and African American history. Her first publication is Race in the Cherokee Nation, published in 2008, which examines the ways in which leaders of the Cherokee Nation facilitate racial ideation through interracial marriage. Her most recent book, Choctaw Confederates, was published this past month in October and is about the Choctaw Nation's involvement in the Civil War. All right, are you ready to just get into it? Sure. Um, and then we're recording this already. Um, so, yeah. Um, Okay. Um, for those unaware, could you briefly explain the missing and murdered indigenous women phrase? Um, so the phrase refers to the fact that there are um, the rates of um, murdered and missing indig indigenous women, um, the rates at which this happens are much higher than for other parts of the population than for white women. Um, in particular. And so people want to draw attention to the fact that this is happening and not much attention is being paid to it, which also means that a lot of these women aren't being looked for if they're missing. And they and um, the perpetrators of murder of these indigenous women aren't being prosecuted as well. So yes, it's a it's a very um, important phrase that we hear a lot of. So we just wanted to make sure that anyone who's listening to the podcast um, was aware of it. Um, so they just knew going forward, like what they could possibly do to help or mm -hmm. was just more aware in general. Um, something else that we kind of wanted to highlight was it is Thanksgiving season and Thanksgiving is, um, um, especially in recent years, sort of a, a, a controversial holiday. People don't really know how to celebrate it because of what it means um, or the effects that colonialism have had on indigenous peoples. Um, so we were wondering if you could also maybe briefly explain some of the common misconceptions about that about Thanksgiving and how we can work to stop the spread of misinformation. Well, that's a really interesting question, because if you look at what's happening in terms of um, what kids learn in elementary school, right, you know, students are still dressing up as pilgrims and making hand turkeys and celebrating the cooperation between um, or the imagined cooperation between native people and, and early colonists uh, in North America. And to be sure, there are definitely moments of cooperation um, and there are definitely moments when native people are doing things to help the colonists that really save their lives. But under underlying all of that is this project um, from the perspective of European colonists where they're coming into a territory, pushing people off of land, settling that territory, not compensating people for the land, um, outright murdering people to get access to that land. And that narrative gets lost under this story of happy cooperation between groups and really a story that um, lifts up an idea of native people even sacrificing in order to help the colonists who are settling. Again, 
without acknowledging the violence that's occurring um, against Native people in this in this settler colonial practice, right? So that's that's the mythology and then the story that's actually taking place underneath. In terms of letting people know uh, more about it, I think that's the hard part is figuring out how to um, share this information in a way that people uh, are willing to give up that narrative from elementary school, right? That's a hard narrative to, to push against and are willing to talk about the um, process of settling this country as being much more complicated than that kind of Thanksgiving story. And then, you know, my other field of interest is in the history of people of African descent. And so connected to that also is then this history of um, forced labor, of, of um, forced migration of people of African descent as well. And so all of that also gets uh, lost in this, this happy narrative of a meal shared together, you know, right? And that, that native people are, are um, supporting these settlers who come in instead of, again, thinking about the uncomfortable idea that a lot of what happens in the settlement of the United States involves violence and involves um, oppressing people. I mean, that's uncomfortable for people to talk about and for people to think about. They much rather have that happy, feel good kind of story for the settlement of the country, right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's actually perfect that you just brought up some of um, your more current research, what you like to focus on, because our next question deals with um, some of your past research. Here, just as a side note, um, we're specifically interested in asking Dr. Yarborough about um, a collection of essays that she co-edited um, with Sandra Slater, who works at the College of Charleston, called Gender and Sexuality in the Indigenous Americas from 1400 to 1850, um, which looks specifically at how um, certain native native polities um, or native groups conceptualizations of gender differed from that of Europeans and how that changed over time throughout um, through contact with colonists. Um, so that's what the next couple questions will be about, just so we're clear. We're asking about how um, about the difference between European and indigenous concepts of gender specifically looking at how Europeans have manipulated those conceptualizations and the ways in which indigenous people have responded. So one of our questions pertaining to that is, how do indigenous people's notions of gender differ from European standpoints? Well, so for the groups, so there's there's a lot of variety among um, native people in terms of how they um, are conceiving of gender. But in the groups that I look at in the Southeast and some of the book of uh, the native people that appear um, in the book that I edited with Sandra Slater, um, there's a lot of emphasis on um, groups who are matrilineal. So, um, which is not the same thing as matriarchal because a lot of these groups still have male chiefs, right? But are matrilineal in terms of figuring descent. So for instance, in um, the Cherokee or the Choctaw groups that I um, that are the focus of my research in the, among the Cherokee, their um, organized society is organized into clans and you re uh, receive membership in your clan based on matrilineal descent from your mom. So if your mom is a member of Deer Clan, you're a member of Deer Clan. 
it doesn't matter what clan your father's a member of, right? So the shorthand I sometimes use in classes, it's like imagining people's last names, right? So if you received your last name from your mother rather than from your father. So uh, because these um, societies are organized matrilineally, it means other things as well, such as uh, when a couple marries, the man comes and joins the woman's household. And oftentimes these households are um, sisters together or a mom and her daughters or an aunt and her nieces together. So it's these women-centered households that the men join into. A lot of times in these societies, agricultural labor is mostly performed by women, which then also means they control the land, right? So that's a very different idea than what Europeans are thinking about in terms of who's doing the labor on the land and um, who's making decisions about labor on the land. And in a lot of these um, societies, uh, they're often described as more um, egalitarian or that there's more respect for the labor that's performed by women and by men, right? So that's different from what the Europeans are seeing. And so when these colonists arrive, they're taken aback <laughs> by what they're seeing, women laboring in the fields, um, women having the ability to have a spokesperson at um, council meetings, right? Those kinds of things. So those ideas are going to bump against each other. And the um, European men will often say negative things about native men. Sometimes they'll call it a petticoat government because the women are too active or they'll say negative things about the women that the native women are, um, sometimes they'll be called uh, drudges. Um, a drudge, according to Google, is someone who is made to do hard, menial, or dull work. Because they're doing all this agricultural labor that European women wouldn't be doing. So th there's moment, those are places where you can see these um, conceptions bumping against each other. And then the ways in which Europeans can manipulate those ideas are that they can press for um, recognition of their way of doing things. So for instance, uh, they will press the Cherokees to recognize patrilineal descent also, right? Because that's what they practice and understand. And so that's what they want um, the Cherokees to practice and understand also to recognize as well, right? So you can see different moments like that where um, European powers, you know, press their understanding of uh, how things should operate, right? No, we don't want to talk to any women who come to the who come to the council to speak. We're only talking to the men, right? And so then that you can see how that will change, how that can change what native practice looks like. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think you might have touched on this a little bit, but our kind of um, follow up question to the sort of overarching question that Elaine asked was. Here, um, I apologize, but our audio goes a little bit funky. Um, so I'm just going to voice over the question here so it's clear. Um, basically, we ask how those, how we see Native attitudes towards women and their role in society change as a result of um, their contact with Europeans throughout the years. So that's what Dr. Yarborough will be talking about in the next question. Well, there's a lot of scholarship that 
that follows this declension model that women lose power over time in terms of their interactions because of their interactions with Europeans, that women who were able to be more participatory, participatory in decision-making lose some of that authority. Or um, you can really see it with land, right? Because the, the model that the federal government is going to use in the 19th century when they're um, dealing with native populations is they think of males as the head of household, not, a, not women as the head of household when they're um, thinking about land allotments, for instance, right? So the, you can see it when they, women are certainly able to receive land allotments, but you can see it in terms of um, the government assuming that it's going to be a man in charge. So they're not even looking at women making these decisions they're you know they're not leaving space for the idea that women could be making these decisions that women can be um, in charge of these things that women are competent right and so that's where you can see the effect on women pretty directly because some of the authority that they were able to exercise in the past they're not going to be able to exercise in the same way in the future now the flip side is where you can see something different is in terms of marriage because these native women um, are more likely to be in interracial relationships with white men than native men are going to be in relationships with white women, right? And so then suddenly, um, because a lot of these um, native societies have a provision to, to bring outsiders in, to adopt outsiders in, then those native women are gonna be kind of the conduit or entry point for white men to be a part of these um, native societies and access land, right? So on the one hand, women's authority can diminish in some capacity, but at the same time, they're suddenly their marriage choices are really important because those marriage sources uh, choices can bring outsiders in who can have really profound effect on what happens in native society. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I think that's really interesting how there's almost that duality of it. Yeah. Right. It's uh, as the, as historians like to say, it's complicated. <laughs> it's never <laughs> as, as simple as one story. Right. So that you can see again, ways in which authority can decline, but ways in which then some other new, um, recognition of power can be there at the same time that this, that a, a, a decline in authority can be happening. Absolutely. We also wanted to ask um, what influence um, those interactions have had on today's current state of affairs for Indigenous women? Like, um, how can we kind of take this historical context and apply it to our modern day? Well, so part of the problem um, that happens with uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women is that there are these competing jurisdictions that are having to investigate these potential crimes or when, when they know that um, a woman has been murdered, actual crimes, right? And these competing jurisdictions come out of these relationships from the 19th and 18th century in terms of um, agreements between the federal government and native um, uh, nations about who has jurisdiction over what crimes, right? So um, there are these intercourse acts that happen in the late um, 18th and early 19th century that say things like 
um, if a native person commits a crime against a non-native person, then the federal government wants to be able to have authority over uh, prosecuting that crime. But if a native person commits a crime against another native person, then that's something that the native authorities can adjudicate. Well, you can imagine if those kinds of things continue forward in time, if a native woman is the victim of a crime um, perpetrated by someone outside of their nation and off of tribal territory, well, then who has authority over looking for investigating, prosecuting um, the perpetrator of that crime, right? So these questions about really about sovereignty um, and jurisdiction are old questions that come from these earlier relationships. So that's where you can see a really direct relationship between a historical thing, you know, a, a historical legal act or treaty and the present moment where you can see, oh, well, this is why then when, when um, an indigenous woman is missing, um, it's unclear what authorities are going to try and figure out. It's, un it's unclear who you report the um, missing person to. It's unclear who's then going to investigate and try to locate this woman. And I think, I mean, underlying all of that is this racism that also comes from these older relationships of, um, you know, state and federal authorities maybe not thinking that these women are important and valuable and that they should be devoting time and resources to it or stereotypes that law enforcement might have about oh well no i'm sure she's just run off somewhere with some guy she's not nothing bad happened to her she's you know not reliable and she ran away without telling any family members right so there are um legal and um, again, connected to sovereignty ways that these older, this, this long history um, impacts this um, crisis really of missing and murdered indigenous women. And then there's the underlying racism that comes out of this longer relationship that also impacts if these crimes are going to be investigated, how thoroughly, who has the authority to prosecute them, et cetera. So I feel like there's a two-pronged way in which history affects this current situation. Yeah, thank you for answering. Um, I think some things that you mentioned in your last response actually lead into our next question pretty well, which is um, basically about why, um, um, why you think indigenous peoples are often left out of the conversation con con uh, concerning diversity um, and like sort of where that comes from in terms of historical context? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a trope of the, the so-called vanishing Indian, right? This idea that native people have disappeared um, in part because of the tremendous loss of life due to um, disease and warfare after contact with um, Europeans, but then also because it's a convenient way to then explain why you're taking all this land away from people. If you decide that they're not there anymore, it's an easier argument. Um, it's an easier way to justify why you're taking over this land if you if you if you claim that it's empty and those people are are gone and lost. So I think um, that narrative 
then makes it hard to rewrite those people back into narratives in the present day moment when you're talking about questions of diversity and inclusion and equity, right? So I think that plays a part into it. I think um, there is um, a question of um, stereotypes about people's appearance, right? And so uh, if you're looking at um, the numbers, of people who claim native ancestry and then, um, well, and, and that's also related to federal policy, right? There's numbers of people who claim native ancestry versus people who are legally recognized as having native ancestry versus what people imagine native people to look like. And so I think all of those things too play into the erasure of the population in some ways, right? People are holding on to these stereotypes about what they want um, Native people to, to look like versus thinking about this isn't a static group, right? Like they're, they're changing over time as well. So for instance, there's a group in um, Rhode Island that um, claim Native ancestry and uh, in the early 20th century aren't being recognized as Native people. And so they take a picture in the newspaper and they don like Plains Indian headdress, which is not what they would normally wear traditionally, but they do that because that's what people want native people to look like. And then they get their picture taken and put in the newspaper and the story is like, oh, native people live among us. No, well, they were there this whole time. <laughs> you just didn't wanna recognize them because they didn't look the way you wanted them to look, right? So I think there's that, like the, um, the stereotype that people have that they want them to remain a static population. Uh, and then versus the reality of this is like any other community in the United States that's constantly evolving and changing and moving around, coming up against then federal policy in terms of recognition and um, membership requirements. And so then all of those things work together to, like I said, to erase the population. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, this is actually going to be our last question. Um, and we just wanted to open it up. Um, how do you recommend that other people learn more about Native American history and current issues? Um, how can we really like start the dialogue concerning Native American people as they're so often left out? Yeah, so I think um... I mean, if I were shamelessly plugging myself, I would plug my new book, <laughs> Choctaw Confederates, which focuses on um, Choctaw participation in the American Civil War. So I'm a historian. So I, my, my default is to want to push people to go look at things like books, right? And to read books about um, uh, Native history and to learn more, especially it seems to me about the Native population that's in the place where you're located, right? So if you're um, in California, then I hope you're looking at who are the native people who lived in my state before it was the state and what's that history like, right? You know, so I think there's that kind of thing that you can do. Um, there are a million podcasts now, I love this land. 
um, which uh, has traced some court cases to look at um, adoption rights and then also um, uh, sovereignty claims, right? So there are a lot of podcasts. If you're if you don't want to read academic history work, you can do that. And now there's a flourishing because we have so many different um, streaming services that are providing content, right? There's been this um, kind of resurgence of um, uh, programming, television programming created by. Um, native writers, native, you know, producers, et cetera, right, who are writing movies and TV shows. So I think there are lots of different avenues, depending on what, what is um, appealing to you or to any of your listeners that, that people can pursue to try to learn more. Um, again, I, I really think it's, it's a history that for some that can feel uncomfortable, but I think part of how we learn and how we grow is that we have to be a little bit uncomfortable, right? And I don't think that um, I don't I, I know there are people who feel like whenever you say something um, that the federal government or that the colonists did wrong, right? Whenever you mention something that they do, that's not a happy story. That's not great. That it's somehow saying something negative about the whole country, about the United States in general. And I actually find that the story of the United States is one of constant improvement and constant or that we're striving for improvement, that we're striving to be better, that we're striving to live up to these ideals that we have in our founding documents. And so I don't think that acknowledging the bad things that have happened in the nation's history is then painting the whole country as bad. I, I think that's what we have to do in order to improve and to be better and to live up to these um, ideas that the country was was founded upon, these ideas that we hope that we can um, exemplify to other countries, right? We, you, you have to look at that history honestly if you want to be able to improve and change and show why. You know, if you if you subscribe to the belief that the that the United States is the best country in the world, well, why? It's be you. It has to be because it's this constant project of change and improvement and um, and evolution. That it's it's not the static thing that we have from the the eighteenth century eighteenth century or colonists from the 17th century, right, that we have to evolve and change. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and I think also maybe specific to Rice students, um, if, you, if there were any course offerings that um, could help uh, students if they were more interested in learning about Native American history in this country um, that you would want to plug? <laughs> oh, well, I, Dr. Jim Sidbury teaches a class uh, on um, native early native history, uh, there um, sometimes when we have um, versions of the first half of the U.S. history survey, sometimes will sometimes a graduate student will teach it, and they will teach it with a specific native focus 
on the course, right? So that can vary depending on who the instructor is. Um, I teach a graduate class on Native women and gender, but it's a graduate class. Uh, though sometimes um, there are undergraduates who ask to take a graduate class, so that's a possibility. So um, those are the ones that I know in the history department. Um, I think in anthropology, you can find classes that have to do with indigenous um, history and origins. Um, you. There was a time when there were some, there was a literature class that that was offered. So you have to look around for your um, for the offerings, but there are some there. And um, you know, if there is more student interest, then you know, I I'm open to teaching an undergraduate class as well on the topic, but we're interested in giving the students what they're asking for. So if there's more student interest in the topic. And then I would say that a lot of classes have an element, even if it doesn't have that in the title. So I teach 19th century women's narratives and native women's history is a big part of that class, even though it doesn't say that in the title. Um, and native history, uh, crops up in a lot of obviously classes that I teach, even, <laughs> even if that's not in the title. Even my, my um, history workshop class, one of the uh, books that we read and one of the kind of historical controversies we um, look at is this book, The Education of Little Tree, which the author claims is a um, autobiography uh, of a native person, but it's not. <laughs> Right. So, so what is it right? What does it mean that it was winning awards and people were loving it and and go back and read this all the time, but it's not at all what that author claims. That's not it at all. I mean, that's a whole other thing, but he was a raging segregationist actually <laughs> and wrote speeches for George Wallace. For those who don't know, George Wallace was the 45th governor of Alabama and was also known for his staunchly segregationist views. But then also has this really gentle story of this little boy um, who's native, who's growing up, right? So, I mean, that's its own other kind of uh, interesting question. But all of that is to say that native history turns up in a lot of my classes and, and I suspect in the classes of my colleagues who teach U.S. history. Awesome, thank you so much. It was, thank you so much for agreeing to do this, um, especially with such a busy schedule. Yes. It was definitely very helpful. Thank you um, so much. And it was very interesting as well. <laughs> oh, good, good. I wasn't sure, I thought, I don't know how, I don't know what they're, <laughs> <laughs> I hope I, <laughs> I hope it's, what they're looking for in terms of the podcast. But yeah, well, I think it's great that you guys are doing it. And I, I think it's wonderful that you're highlighting um, the situation for missing and murdered indigenous women, because if you, I mean, the statistics are not complete, but they're kind of shocking at how much more likely indigenous women are to be, um, for instance, um, victims of violence. I mean, it's some of the estimates are like 10 times more likely. That's crazy. Easy, yeah. Right? I mean, that's that's a crazy number to hear, you know, 10 times more likely 
especially when you see these stories on television where, which is not to minimize um, looking for um, Gabby Potit, right? Who oh, was yeah. traveling yeah. by car with her boyfriend. But if you watch the news, you would think native women are never missing and murdered because you never see stories about them, right? That's, it's amazing that, you, I mean, you just never see stories about them, but they're more likely than, um, white women to be victims of violence, but the media presence of that is really limited. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't actually think I even had heard the actual um, statistic until right now. I just knew that it was mm -hmm. more likely for Indigenous women to go or to go missing or be murdered, but it's really shocking to actually hear the number. Yeah, the numbers are really, let me make sure I'm, I'll give you a, let, okay, American Indian women face murder rates that are more than 10 times the national average. Wow. Right, more than 10 times the national average, but you just, you would not have that impression based on what you see on, on the news, on the evening news. You just wouldn't know that. And I mean, one of the good things about our current, um, I say this as a person who's not even on Facebook, <laughs> the current social media landscape is that, uh, I mean, it's by and large, but native women are able to draw attention to what's happening, right? And they are able to publicize because other outlets don't do it for them. And so they've had to, take that on themselves. So, I mean, that's the positive in this moment that they're able to access social media and other platforms to draw attention to the phenomenon, but it's kind of crazy that it, it doesn't receive more attention. So, so I'm glad that you guys are doing it. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you for your help. Thank you for listening to our first podcast episode of the 2021-2022 school year. Um, we hope you enjoyed it and stay tuned for more. Have a nice week.